Hello and welcome to the Inspired Educator Podcast, where educators share insights to improve the educational experience. I'm your host, Dr. Yuling Lee. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Matthew Etherington. Matthew is a colleague and professor of education at Trinity Western University, where he is also the director of the Institute of Indigenous Issues and Perspectives. In our conversation, we discuss the indigenous and indigenizing education. Matthew offers a worldview approach to help us understand this important topic. Without further ado, Matthew Etherington. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yuling. It is a delight to be here. Um, so you put, I guess when you emailed me, you mentioned indigenous non-integration approach. Clearly, I'm not an expert in indigenous education, but yeah, can you kind of explain what this is? And Sure, I can. The indigenous non-integration approach um, comes from some of the uh, experiences and, and insights that I've uh, encountered over the last few years, um, mostly with teachers and educators who have been really um, uh, challenged in how they include Indigenous ways in their curriculum. And so a lot of the teachers were talking about the problem with integration okay. um, and how to what does that look like and, and what doesn't it look like and, and how to do that well and, and authentically. And so I was at a conference a few years ago where I was listening to some Australian Indigenous people talk about um, uh, what it was to be an Indigenous Australian. And uh, they were saying that when they look and they, they're, they're in the city where there is, there is obviously, um, you know, the city is, is, is developed and there's, there's concrete everywhere and there's, there's buildings. And they said that they're able to still look at all that. That's their land still but they're able to lift the country out of the city. And I thought that was a really interesting concept, that you could lift the country out of the city. And so I started to think, well, how could that possibly apply to the curriculum? And so I started to think, well, if you can, you can look at land and see your land underneath all that, all that concrete, then couldn't you do the same with curriculum? Hmm. And so what I started to think about is, is there are already indigenous ways of knowing and being and valuing that's already in the curriculum and the job of the educator is to lift it out and so for me that requires putting aside the integration approach which doesn't assume that it's there already mm -hmm. assumes you have to add it on and be able to to see the non-indigenous and and the indigenous ways of knowing and being and thinking and be able to lift it out can you um, <clears throat> explain even what would Indigenous knowledge, ways of knowing, ways of being look yeah. like in, I guess, a, a general sense? Yeah, so the best way I think about it is, and I use the concept of worldview, and I, and I know there are always problems with using that concept because some people would say it's a very cognitive way of thinking about learning, but it's still very helpful, and I don't think we, I, I'm very sympathetic to that term, that concept. So I, I always start with worldview, uh, and worldview encompasses three main components, and they are knowledge, which we call epistemology, um, uh, values, which is axiology, mm -hmm. and reality, which is ontology. 
and I try not to use those terms, they can put people <laughs> off. But um, So I just say, okay, what knowledge, what values, and what's the reality of this worldview? And so I ask the students, for example, to read uh, a class, a really good book to, to be able to see this is Lord of the Flies. Okay. Right, that's a, that's a really great book. Because in that book you see a lot of, um, and you're able to sift out some of the non-Indigenous worldview, which is one example is uh, a non-Indigenous Western uh, Eurocentric way of thinking about uh, survival is it's it's basically you, you, it's competitive. Mm-hmm. You you have a lot of competitives, a lot of com- competition, uh, and you need to survive, and often that requires um, beating your opponent yeah. and winning. Right, survival of the fittest kind of approach. That's a very Western way of thinking about surviving, right, or living. And so you see that in that book. It's so it's mm-hmm. with, the, with the children, with the you know surviving. They they basically you have to kill in order to stop stop you from being killed. And so w- what we do is we look at we look at those sorts of things. So what knowledge is important from a Western perspective? Well, the knowledge of how to survive, the knowledge uh, that it's basically up to you. Um, and then what values? Well, survival at all costs. Um, I'm the most important part of this whole picture. Um, and how do I see re- reality? Well, I see it as a very competitive, um, uh, you know, making sure you look behind your back because someone could be coming up to to, to take your life. And mm-hmm. and so th- th- that's what I mean by knowledge, reality and values. And so I, you see that in, that, in a book like that. And so then I, I say to the students, well, what would be an Indigenous way? Uh, what would be some Indigenous ways of knowing, Indigenous ways of valuing, an Indigenous way of seeing reality? Mm-hmm. So what that could be, for example, well, Indigenous ways of seeing reality is, is the world is not like that. It's not competitive. It's not it's survival of the fittest. It's working amongst one another. It's always in relationship. It's actually helping others um, because in a, in a collective sense, not in this individualistic sense. And so that's what I mean by the two worldviews. So there, there are always, there's always an indigenous worldview in there, or you could just say, well, okay, here's a, here's a non-indigenous worldview. What might be a counter to that? Well, it'd be an indigenous. So what if, if I think that this knowledge is important to, to know, if I think this is really important knowledge, then what would be an indigenous way of understanding knowledge? And so you could use it that way. So it's kind of lifting out. But I find a lot of, in most of the material that I read, there is already an Indigenous worldview there. And you need to just lift it out. Yeah. But to be able to do that, you've got to know what Indigenous knowledge is and you've got to know what Indigenous reality is and what Indigenous values are. You've got to have that knowledge too. Okay. So can you kind of give an example of then within the curriculum, and I guess in our context, whether it's Canada or specifically BC, what would that look like, that you can already find these Indigenous knowledge or values within a, a curriculum? Um, and then how would you then go about lifting it out? Yeah, well, one of the things that I've been able to um, talk to a lot of Indigenous people about in the last few years is what are some of the ways that we can indigenize. Mm. And it seems to be there, there are a number of ways. Um, there's you know, learning outcomes, there's the content itself, there's certain activities, there's assessment, different ways of assessing, and there's this philosophy. Mm. And teachers in, in BC, for example, are very aware of the First Nations principle, or the First Peoples principles of learning. Most teachers have that p- 
poster somewhere in their room. <laughs> yes. Um, and so what that that is a very helpful philosophical way of understanding Indigenous worldview. Okay. Uh, learning takes time. Some learning is sacred. Um, learning is passed on through the elders. These sorts of things are all components of an Indigenous worldview. And so what I what I try to do now is I say, okay, let's take the first people's principles of learning. It's a philosophical, it's a worldview there. And let's see where those principles apply in in the work that you're doing now, the task that you're doing. Mm. So it could be a pedagogical thing. It could be they're working in groups. Okay, so what do the first people's principles say about working in groups, right? So, Or it could be an assessment. What are the first people's principles, which is the worldview, what does that say about this particular type of assessment? Does it reflect an Indigenous worldview or does it reflect more of a Western uh, worldview? Mm-hmm. And, or it could be outcomes. Is this outcome that we're trying to achieve, is that more in line with an Indigenous worldview? Again, looking at the First Peoples principles, curriculum content, the, the activities that you use. So there's, there's actually sort of five ways you can really do it. Um, and that, that were some of the five ways that I try to apply it mm-hmm. in a classroom. But I think the... First people's principles of learning is is a really good if, if someone's really struggling not knowing well, what is an indigenous worldview, you've got you've got it right there. Yeah. You really have. It's very helpful like that. So I just say, take that and you know, using that approach, you don't even need additional resources. I mean, there are great resources out there, but you don't need necessarily to be trying to find resources to support the learning. I think using a worldview approach, any teacher can do that at any time with any subject. And if I can just say this as well, this takes away the the problem with some teachers or educators that will say, for example, I teach physics, there is no Indigenous worldview. Right? How do I indigenize? Mm -hmm. It's impossible. Physics stands alone. (laughs) Um, And so it it removes that kind of um, problem, which is not really a problem. I mean, there's the difference between what is a problem is it actual or perceived? And I think that's a perceived problem, but it's based on this incorrect view of integration mm-hmm. because integration assumes that there that it's not there already. Yeah, because most, I, I imagine, and I've had this experience with some of our students where they respect these ideas or this worldview, using your language of the indigenous approaches or mm. indigenous ways of knowing, um, but in order to enact that, it is ultimately a integrative approach. At least that's kind of, in my mind, <clears throat> the first solution that they go to, or the way that they will try and solve this problem. Yes. So what I'm hearing then is you're saying, no, that is, I don't know, I don't want to say it's a false way of, of going about doing it, but it's a uh, a, a different, perhaps a Western <laughs> westernized solution for this way of, of seeing, um, I guess, this first peoples and, and this... I guess, indigenous ways of knowing and, and being and of teaching and learning then. Mm-hmm. So in your experience, when you're teaching these students, um, I'm trying to figure out how to help them move from, I guess, this integrative approach and then more towards that. I know you kind of gave us some steps, but in the classroom, uh, do you have any particular assignments or things or readings even that you've suggested to help them move away from... Mm-hmm. I guess, quote, a integrative approach um, towards this different way of being and discerning? Yeah, that's a good question. One of the things we, we do initially, right from the very beginning, 
is we have a discussion about language. Okay. Because most most of the words we use are metaf- metaphors. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about the metaphorical nature of language. So take, for example, the, the metaphor integration, mm-hmm. right? What is, what is that? So I ask the students, what, what does that mean to you? What is, what is integration? So we have that discussion and it always means something like adding something to something else. Yeah. And so we talk about that. Um, and then um, after I've done that, then we, we start to think about, well, okay, if integration is, is this, I, well, it assumes that language and knowledge and, and topics are all very segregated from one another. They're isolated. They're compartmentalized. I mean, and that's that's a that's a, a good example of of a Western way of understanding knowledge. Mm-hmm. Knowledge is separate. You know, I mean, you've got mathematics, you've got science; they're all sort of separate from one another. And so we we start to to unpack that a little bit and say, well, okay, knowledge actually doesn't. It, it's not like that. We don't you don't live your life getting up in the morning and say, I'm going to think mathematically now, or I'm going to think scientific. We we kind of it's very integrated right through the day. And I use that term, not trying to say that it can be used. In, in integration meaning in, in that sense that we think in ways that are, that are complex and, and that our knowledge sort of cuts over one another and it, and it moves and it changes, but it's not compartmentalized. Yes. And so we start to talk about that. And then one of the, one of the, uh, one of the papers that I give the students to read, and I think every single person should read this paper is, is a paper written by Vernus and Dennis uh, she is a professor at the University of Saskatchewan, and she wrote a very good, insightful paper um, on the sovereignty of Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good paper if you want to have an understanding of the why. Unless you understand why this needs to be done authentically and well and truthfully, then you need to engage yourself in, in, that, in that question and that discussion. And so she outlines the reason and she, she does a great job and she says, you know, Indigenous peoples are, are sovereign people and so the sovereignty means that their knowledge and their values and their reality needs to be distributed equally in the classroom mm-hmm. um, and it needs to be done that in all areas, all subject areas. And so that's why when we start thinking of it along th- those terms, then we start to say, okay, in all the curriculum areas, then there's already indigenous ways and knowledge there and we just have to be looking for that and to know what they are. And so there needs to be a, a students need to have content mm-hmm. and they need to have lived experience. And so um, we have a, uh, here, at, here at the university, we have um, Patty Victor, who is our university Siam, mm-hmm. which means wise elder. And so we work together and uh, Patty gives the lived experience and I give the more pedagogical and so we work together really well and I think it's a great example of reconciliation of how two people one indigenous and one non-indigenous can actually have a very similar vision of understanding worldview from two different but but some similar ways of understanding reality Mm -hmm. and so we've been doing that for a few years now so that that's something that I think the students have benefited from as well having non-indigenous and indigenous um, giving one one giving the lived experience and one giving the pedagogical ways of doing this well. Yeah. So you're both part of the Institute of Indigenous Issues and Perspectives. Yeah. 
Can you help describe what that is or, or how you came about forming that? Because I'm kind of curious, it sounds like that would be the institute that helps direct this initiative, mm-hmm. right? It sounds like that's where the, the main partnership between you and, and Patty comes about. So I'm curious as to, did you both separately see this need and then that's how um, this initiative came about? Or yeah, I'm just kind of curious what went into that. Yeah, that's a good question. So a number of years ago, I, th- I think these, the Institute started again or was uh, given its status in around 2013 or 14. I can't remember the exact date, but that came about because um, after it, it basically came about because there was an, an absence. I felt there was a real absence of any anything number one, anything symbolic or anything that people could be part of mm-hmm. that could speak to the issues that needed to be sp- spoken to, and they were Indigenous issues. And so, the institute was it would be a reminder to all of us that Indigenous understandings and worldview is significant and needs to be part of this ongoing conversation. So a number of scholars and myself, we came together and we said, okay, what would be something, something that would be a venue where we could invite people from the local community, number one, Mm. in the regional areas, and then go outside of then national and then go outside of, of, of Canada and go international because Indigenous issues, there are is very similar issues that Indigenous people face around the world mm-hmm. and there's some very local ones too. And so we thought, well, what would be a way we could do that? So the Institute was a natural way of, of beginning that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've been able to bring in local people who have spoken to the issues. Now, the issues that have been raised, they often get included into the content of the course. So it does direct the course um, in, that, in that way. Um, we've also been able to develop good relationships with a number of speakers that have come hmm. over the years. We've also taken the Institute off campus and gone to other universities, oh. uh, which is an Indigenous way of <laughs> uh, enacting uh, um, an Institute. It's yeah. not always like come, come to us. We, we have to come to you too. We have to go to you. So that's been very helpful as well. So, uh, and so where, where have you gone? Well, we've gone to the University of Fraser Valley. Okay. And uh, we presented there. And, uh, and that was a good turnout. And again, it was just showing that, that we want to learn because the Institute is about learning. It's to generate research for sure. But it's also about we, we need to learn. We need to understand what's going on here. And so it's got this educative component, research component, and a, a symbol to the university and to the general community that um, this is where we, we're moving forward with this and we're, we're doing it in a way that, uh, that, that we seek to be authentic and truthful. And we, one of the things we have as part of the, I guess, the, the, core, the core component of that institute is we follow truth no matter where it leads. Mm. And so we take on any issue. We're not afraid to do that because we know the important thing is to be truthful. And so we, we have that as our mandate to follow truth no matter where it leads, even if it leads into uncomfortable places, we, we go there. Can you give an example of that <laughs> or is that too uncomfortable? Well, yeah. Um, well, I think one of the, the big issues at the moment is land okay. um, and uh, addressing uh, Indigenous land uh, and address, addressing the concept of what it means to be on unceded territory. And that gets people very uncomfortable. Uh, people sometimes don't want to use that word, mm-hmm. but it's an important word to use because it's truthful. 
Yes. We are on unceded territory. There are no treaties here. Mm -hmm. And so we must be truthful, even if it's uncomfortable. And so that's been a, a topic that we address. Um, and, you know, you, you, as we've addressed it, we realize that people are at different stages mm -hmm. with accepting that. Uh, now, what does that mean? Once you, once you admit that, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of the next conversation that we're having. And, and some people find that a really difficult one. Uh, but again, we, if, if that is the truth, and it is, then we need to follow it mm. and we need to deal with it as we go along with that. Mm. It kind of circles back to the beginning where you're talking about language and how this, yeah, yeah these different conceptual understandings and just one word like unseated um, and how, as we know, it could throw many people <laughs> for a loop. So within this institute, uh, does EDUC, does this course for EDUC 496, like issues in Indigenous education, does it fall under that purview of that institute then? Yeah. Um, well, in, well, the 496, which is our Indigenous course, yeah. um, it, Patty Victor and I, our university sound, we teach that together. The institute uh, acts as an uh, informant to the class, but depend, it, it depends on what we're actually looking at. Um, yeah. As I, as I mentioned, I think just a minute ago, the land has been a, 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 a topic that the Institute has been focused on. Um, and, and also sovereignty as well. That's another really difficult issue for some people, many non-Indigenous people, that Indigenous people are a sovereign people. That means that we have the crown mm -hmm. and we have Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And I always, you know, sometimes students say to me, well, what, what's, I mean, we're never going to solve this. It's such a big issue and everything. And I said, well, let's look at some nations that have done this better than us. Mm. Um, and I always, I always point to, and it's not a perfect example, but it's, I think it's an example we can look to. I, I look at the, the country of New Zealand, which is close to where I, I grew up in Australia. And, you know, they, there they have an understanding that there are uh, two groups of people in that country. There are ind Indigenous people and everybody else. Mm. Um, so you've got two sovereign groups coming together mm. um and so you know indigenous ways are represented in education in in uh healthcare, mm. in government and so it's done much better and it's done in a more um sovereign two, two sovereign parties coming together and, and working out and, and solving things together which is the way it should be done yeah i think we're moving towards that um slowly um i i always look with great heartache at my country australia where they take a, a different approach it's more of everyone's equal and no one stands out mm. no one's sovereign more than anybody else um and that's a kind of a very well a very eurocentric way of <laughs> thinking about uh hu you know, human beings yeah so yeah so th there's some of the some of the uh challenges that we've been having but we've been moving along and i think as students start to have these conversations face to face mm -hmm. um they start to take away, they start to understand what, what's been some of the cultural barriers that is, has been you know, so important to them that they need to let go of. Sometimes we need to let go of some things in our, in our cultural understandings to understand another culture. Um, sometimes that's okay to let go of some of those things mm. uh, because then you, ca then you can understand another culture. Mm -hmm. You've got to be able to see with sometimes different eyes. And that takes time, and we realize, you know, one of the 
first people's principles is that learning takes time yeah. and patience. Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming a lot of this is being discussed, especially and specifically in that course that you're, you're co-teaching with Patty. Are there other elements that you've included? Because I know it's a very different class um, <laughs> from the typical education courses that we offer. So I'm just curious as to what other um, things are are found in this class that perhaps, say, an educator might would like to consider. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, one of the, one of the areas that we've addressed and we we, we keep on addressing is um, is living in place. Or we've all as educators we've heard of place based uh, pedagogy. Yeah. But this is living in place, and this would involve understanding your geography. Um, your local resources, the climate, um, understanding the significance of that. Mm-hmm. So living in place is a very important thing in the course. Um, language and communication, so being able to understand the significance of language and yeah. identity um, and the way we communicate with one another um, and an emphasis on nonverbal communication as well. Okay. Uh, that's important. So that's living... Often that is, you know, how do we live in relationship with one another? Okay. It doesn't always have to be verbal, but the styles of nonverbal communication. You know, sometimes in the course, silence. Mm. You know, we're not, we get uncomfortable with silence, but <laughs> silence is communication as well. Um, and expression. We ob- obviously look at culture. Um, you know, we're all embedded in our culture and we all look at things through our cultural lenses um, and understanding that and understanding the significance of that. And what values are important mm-hmm. to, to not just as us as individuals, but as a collective. And we're so focused, I think, on sort of an individualized way of thinking about our lives. And I think that can lead to loneliness. Mm-hmm. I really do. And I think, you know, understanding we're, we're, we have a collective responsibility to one another as well. Mm. So they're the kind of issues that, that come up in the class too. Mm-hmm. And you speak about, um, say, like, the assessment in the class, because I know you bring in oh. a, a performative element or uh, I, from what I understand, you, you bring in elders to, to come as well. I don't know if assessment is the right word if you're going to yeah. use. Um, I, I guess that also speaks to this whole communal way and different way of, of knowledge. And so how does all that work? Yeah. So a number of years ago, Patty and I, we, we talked, we had a meeting and we were talking about, we meet actually quite often, but we we're saying, you know, how, how do we help these students move forward? Mm. Not just in their minds, but in their hearts. Um, and we know that, you know, we, we both understand that moral growth doesn't always occur unless there's some suffering. You know, suffering <laughs> is not okay. a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, we learn through suffering. We, we develop insights that we wouldn't have had beforehand. Uh, but you know, often we see suffering as a bad thing. But so we thought, okay, what would be a way to help the students move forward, heart and mind, in regards to taking this course? They've completed this course. Now what do they do with it? Mm. We don't want them just to say, well, I've done that course, tick a box, let's move on to the next course, which, which does often happen in education when you're, when you're learning. We, we get through the courses and we move on. And so we thought, okay, what's, what's something that could be authentic, could be real, and, but would require them to step out of their comfort zone, mm-hmm. so to speak? And so we thought, well, one way to do that would be to have some type of assessment at the end that would be 
um, that would stretch the students, that would make them feel a little bit uncomfortable, however, would get them to rethink and, and look back into their own journey mm. during this course. And so we structured the course. We, we came up with a little rubric. And the rubric was, we said to the students, we want you to tell us where you were when you first started this course. Like, what was your thinking? Where was your heart with Indigenous issues or issues in Indigenous education? Where were you? Uh, where are you now? So that's the second part. It's only three parts. Where are you now after having completed this course? You've heard a number of Indigenous speakers. Um, you've, you've read material. You've visited places. You've heard residential survivors share their testimony. Mm. Where are you now? But that's not where we want you to – we don't want to leave you just there. We want to ask you this and we want you to think about this. Where and what are you going to do with this now? That you've you've moved forward in these ways. It might have you've might have you know there might be a lot of movement. There might have been a lot of progress. It might be just little. That's okay too. But what it, what are you now going to do with this course? And so where were you when you first started? Where are you now? And what are you going to do with this? And so we asked the students to present themselves for ten to twelve minutes to a panel of indigenous uh, leaders and educators and speakers. And we asked them to present those three areas to, to the elders. Mm. And so they come out and they say, this is where I was. And sometimes they'll use concrete. Um, they've, made, you know, they've made something to show the, the Indigenous uh, panel of, of, I mean, you could call them judges. I, I don't want to say that. But they're, <laughs> they're certainly they're educators who are listening and, and um, you know, sharing some of their insights too during the exam. But the students come out, they, they sometimes create something, they make something, they say, this is where I was, I was like this. Sometimes I mean, one student brought a little, just a little uh, potted plant and said, this is little potted plant was where I was and spoke about that. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where I am now. And then sometimes, again, they'll make something, sometimes they'll sing a song. They, we, we had a great rap, I didn't even know this person knew rap, but they were <laughs> a rap artist. And they, they came up with a rap song okay. and did this amazing rap song that actually... Uh, touched upon those three areas, yeah. really well done, just amazing. Uh, and so other people have sung songs, people have made, done a painting and right in mm. front of us. But they, that's what they do. And then at the end, after about 10 to 12 minutes, sometimes one of the elders or Indigenous educators will ask a question. Mm. Um, and it's always a very I, – I, I've been doing this now with Patty for a few years and, you know, after uh, – Sometimes after a presentation, I'll go out the back and there'll be a student just weeping, mm. um, just absolutely touched mm -hmm. uh, by what they had just done. Mm. Um, and so that we've been doing that for a few years now and it's been, it's been uh, I think it's been a really important part of their journey. Mm. So it's not just, a, I mean, we could have done a written exam. I, I, I didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do that. Yeah. We wanted to do something that was experiential, which is in more in line with Indigenous ways a more holistic way of, of sharing your learning. Yeah. How, how would the, the educators, the Indigenous, I, I assume some of them are elders as well? Yeah. So uh, what kind of feedback would they tend to give? Mm -hmm. uh, they're just speaking to the authenticity or, yeah, I'm just kind of curious because yeah. like, I, <laughs> I haven't seen that yet in class. Yeah, it, it's, well, I mean, every year we do this, we never know, First of all, we don't know what the students are going to bring. Of course. And we don't know. We, we often have different 
different elders. Um, I mean, we have had we've had uh, residential school survivors that have come. We've had uh, indigenous uh, educators. We've had um, all different sorts of people with different roles. But um, it depends on who it is. But uh, most of the time, the people that come to listen to the students are very touched mm. by what they ha- they have seen. Um, and they'll go away saying, I feel more positive than I did when before I walked into this room. Hmm. So it's been very good, and I think it's it's about building relationship too. And although it's only 10 to 12 minutes, something is offered from these young people to these Indigenous elders and, and educators, and there's a reciprocal, something reciprocal happens there. Um, and there are promises made, there's commitments made, and I think the most of the time the feedback from the from those that come and listen to the students is 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 a positive one one of hope. Mm. There has been a few times when students struggle. Uh, we had a student a few years ago who weeped the whole ten minutes, mm. uh, and I I had to say, look, um, it's important that you experience this, but you've also got a job to do as well, yeah. and you've got to you've got to share what you is what you've prepared prepared. And so that was done, but I remember the one of the uh, elders said that obviously that uh, that young person their, their heart has has changed, mm. and I can see that. Mm-hmm. And so little things like that, you don't know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. and but I one thing that often does happen is 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 people, the young you know these young students who are going to be our next future teachers, they're they're they they take it very seriously. Um, but they walk away very different too. Yeah, and uh, so it's a good it's a good way of you know the the I always say the 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 indigenous speakers who have come to the class they have given a lot of themselves they have shared. Mm-hmm. It's now it's now your turn mm. to share and to give a little bit of yourself now to the elders. Mm. And so it's a res- that's the reciprocal part of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely a I guess a non integrative. <laughs> yeah. teacher education approach <laughs> exactly exactly oh yeah and that's that's i think that's the way forward i the integration pro, i mean integration is better than nothing mm-hmm. but it's not the best way i think i think if we understand that already there are values and reality and knowledge that is already there and for the educator to be able to sift that out and to be able to help the students see that I think is is a lot more authentic, and it's it's a lot more exciting too to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I I have students that will say to me, "I now read material, I read a book, or and and I start to see the this this these worldviews come out that I hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. They're amazed. Hmm. So that's always encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll have to definitely explore this a bit more because I'm sure there's I have some other specific questions about Indigenous education. Thank you. That was really wonderful. A special thank you to Matthew Etherington for a wonderful conversation. This episode is brought to you by the School of Education at Trinity Western University. Until next time, may you be inspired in your educational journey.